Hello and welcome to the Reach Out for Mental Health podcast. I'm Stuart Biffin, joining me always. Uh, sitting beside me today. <laughs> it's really weird. Kirsty, you right? I'm really good. I'm really good. It's 100 degrees in this office. It's so hot. Well, it, it's, I don't know if we're, we're recording this on the uh, 19th of January where uh, I've got to go to work tonight and stand outside a nightclub for six hours oh, in God. what's looking like it's going to be minus four. So I'm just warming my bones today. Have before, you not got your, um, your insulated gilet? You keep the telling me to operated. buy a battery-operated gilet, but <laughs> I just feel like, I know I'm 50, but that just feels like I shouldn't be doing that for another 10 years yet. Right. Get it in, get it on. Well, look, um, I've introduced one Kirsty, and, uh, and now I'm going to introduce a, a, another Kirsty, but I'm going to refer to her as Bozzers because that's how, how I know her. Bozzers, how are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you. Um, Good. Well, look, I, I will get into uh, that this was a long time coming because we did have a conversation about recording this a while ago and, and you was about to tell us why, but I said, let's wait until we record and we can talk about that. But yeah. we always start the podcast with the same question, Bozzers, and that's if I say the words mental health, yeah. what do you think? What comes to mind? Um, To be honest, it's probably... A, a subject that dominates much of my much of my personality at this point because I find that it's 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 been such an enormous part of who I am as somebody that is existing post childhood trauma. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like I bring it up quite a lot and I try to be as open with it as possible. And it's something that I always try to be open with with my friends and people around me so that they're aware that my mental health is poor so unfortunately when I think mental health I don't think of like mental wellness I always just think about like poor mental health because that has been such a big part of my life I mean before we sort of go back and I'm, I, I would ask you about when you first realized that maybe your your mental health wasn't where it should be uh, um tell us why we had to reschedule this because you mentioned that you was feeling pretty low at the time and like sort of give yeah. us a bit of sort of context to that really so I think as I'm getting older so I'm I'm 37 this year and with being in your 30s I feel like a big part of that is um understanding yourself and realization I feel like your 20s is like a bit of a um, can I swear of course you can. My 20s was like a bit of a mindfuck where I didn't know what I was doing and I was treating people not the way that I wanted to treat them, but I couldn't understand why. And so I felt like all my 20s was like the making of mistakes. And then my 30s was actually understanding myself better and coming to terms with like my own behaviour and the way that I am. As a result of that, I wanted to come on the podcast and talk about um, my mental health. It's something that I feel like is very, very important to discuss with people, especially when you're somebody that's got poor mental health but maybe you're like functioning well and so to other people that see you on the internet or for example I'm a journalist so through my stories and they think she looks like she's got stuff together and actually I haven't so it's felt very important for me to talk about it but when we spoke about actually coming on the podcast I was going through a period of quite poor mental health so I was struggling badly with my anxiety um suicidal ideation is a big thing that I deal with um pretty much every single day um for large swathes of the day and when I wanted to come on the podcast I was in a dip with that so as anybody will know if they've got poor mental health it's kind of like ups and downs I was in 
one of the down periods and I just felt like a phony coming onto a podcast and mm. talking about mental health when I couldn't offer any light in it and say well actually now that I'm out of that I've mm. got the all these things that I can tell you about the way that it can make you feel better and I just felt like I haven't got any of that and so I felt embarrassed almost talking about it when I couldn't I couldn't look on, back on it retrospectively because it's not retrospective it's my life and then more recently sorry Stu but right. we, we talked I came back to you after a while of not speaking and it was this moment where I thought to myself, actually, more people talking about it when they're in that that trench, as it were, is probably also quite helpful to people. And so I kind of needed a moment to realise that and get some get some confidence to to say that like I'm not doing okay, and that that doesn't mean that I can't help anyone else or that what I've got to say isn't important. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Um- I'm showing my naivety here. Did you say suicidal ideations? Ideation. Ideations. Can you explain to me and other listeners what if they don't know what that means? Yeah. So for me, um, I feel like suicidal ideation has been this preoccupation or intrusive thought for part throughout parts of my life ever since I've, I've I'm probably old enough to have any idea of what feelings are. So teens late teens all through my 20s into my 30s um more so more recently I lost a I lost a friend who suffered with his with his mental health um and I think what ideation is is this preoccupation or this 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 idea in your mind that actually that is that is a viable solution to your problems that's certainly what it was to me um and so that is a thought that comes into my head when things are bad or even when things are just mildly inconvenient I just think to myself actually you know it would be easier and as a result of having that ideation where it's in my mind a lot I um you start to develop like better plans for it or researching nicer ways to die or researching how to die or what dying is like and so it becomes like this thought that's in your mind that I am aware as I get a little bit older that that's not necessarily everyone else's lived experience and that other people don't think like that. Have you have you when you've opened up and been open and honest with your friends or colleagues or you know family maybe do other people have you ever spoken to anyone else that shared a similar kind of experience to you um I think what really didn't help me as as a person was in my late teens and into my early 20s when I was at university and trying to like make my own way through life I was always like a little bit alt so I was always like got piercings in my face and listened to heavy metal and there was always this idea that like you're just an emo. You just, you just, um, you're just one of those miserable goths. And so when I tried to talk about, but when I tried to, sorry, I'm under my blanket. Yeah, just moving around. Um, when I tried to talk to people about it in the early part of of struggling with it in my early adulthood, I felt as though um, it was kind of crushed down and made to feel like, oh, this is just a phase that you're going through and you just meet a miserable goth and this is what miserable goths do they talk about dying and all the music you listen to is about death and all this kind of stuff and I felt like what that meant was for a really long time because I wanted to be like 
legitimate and I felt like it made me not a legitimate person to have struggles with the thought of suicide and and allowing myself to feel the depths of like my own personal despair at times I felt as though talking about it with other people wasn't helpful um another big part of that is that I have spent pretty much my entire adult life um uh separated from my family so I don't have parents active in my life and I haven't in my entire adult life really apart from my very early sort of 18 19 I think the last time I spoke to any of my either of my parents was then um and I'm 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 isolated from my family as well so I I live by myself and I spend quite a lot of time by myself and I've got friends that I talk to about my mental health but I feel like I'm getting them down or they're all growing up now that we're in our mid to late 30s and they're having kids and they're having families and I am stuffed not having any of those things not wanting to drag them down or bring them down when they want to share pictures of their lovely lives and their families and do lovely things and I am just this miserable person that cries for vast parts of the day or sits there thinking about different less painful ways to die (laughs) that's not what I do completely and utterly by the way I do you know it's not my entire life but it is stitched through the fabric of my life I feel like so the, the the friends and family that you do speak to and you do feel that you can be open and honest with mm. have you ever started a conversation where you've been vulnerable where you felt safe enough to be vulnerable with them has anybody actually reflected that back and said oh do you know what now that you come to mention it I'm glad that you've said that because you know I've experienced that previously or I'm going yeah now not really <laughs> I don't I don't I don't no, I don't think I have. The only times that I've had to like call upon friends or friends have had to come um to me. I'm I'm quite an independent person. I think this comes as a result of being, you know, isolated from my family and also a big part of my life is like running away from um from childhood trauma and poverty. And so I'm always like on the go and I'm like a bit of an overachiever in lots of ways. And as a result of that, I think I find it difficult to level with people when before it tips over the edge to being really, really bad. And then when it tips over the edge to being really, really bad, it's kind of like my friend's going to have to haul ass around the corner in the car because the police are here and the ambulance is coming. And you know what I mean? And it's like, it gets so far that actually now people have to be involved because I can't deal with it on my own. And um, so I am still really in a, I sound like I'm having a crisis and I just want to assure you that I am not. I'm having a great week and I'm well. I've got um, one, one, one option too, ready to go. Just, you know, if you need Everything's it. absolutely fine. I just want to say everything is fine. I'm just talking about those really dark moments where, no, I don't feel as though there are people that I talk to, which is why it's probably really important that a podcast like this or a service that you offer allows people that space to talk about it without feeling judged to listen to other people that are having similar experiences and to engage with somebody that they don't feel like they're necessarily burdening because they're a dedicated resource for that. And that is so important. And part of the reason why I do want to talk about it so openly. And I'm sorry if I sound like I'm being really, really candid and brutal, but it just seems like maybe this is a good time to talk about that. Perfect. Perfect. You you know, you talk about these reoccurring suicidal thoughts and uh, have you kind of have you got yourself in a position where 
as overwhelming as they are, through having experienced that over a period of time, when you're in that, can you ever sort of rationalise with yourself that this isn't, you know, th- th- this is something I can manage and I can get past this? Like when you're in the sort of depths of that, or does it feel all-consuming? It feels all-consuming because you there's this whole, I mean, if, even if you think about this phrase or the thing that you see on all gravestones, which is like rest in peace. You know what I mean? Rest in peace. Peace is like this thing that happens after you're alive. And, you know, for me, when I like wish on candles on my birthday cake, if I get one or I see a shooting star or I have any of those moments where it's like, oh, it's 11-11, make a wish. That is the thing that I always wish for. It's like, please, peace, please, please give me peace. Peace is the thing that I'm like searching for all the time. And actually in the life that we live, which is all go, 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 the industry that I'm in, which is ever changing ever change I write for a newspaper every single day the news is different we're looking at all of these things that are happening all around the world all of the time and it's everything all the time and I pick up my phone and I've got the whole world there and I'll go through TikTok for an hour and I've suddenly gone down a 10 rabbit holes of like in- enormous information and I don't I find it that peace isn't something that I find easy to find in my living waking life it's either when I'm asleep when I'm medicated or this idea that you get it when you die and I find that you know miserable to be honest what do you what do you think peace is um not whatever it is that I've currently go through (laughs) um to be to be to be fair more recently so I was quite poorly in November of 2020 um I just started a podcast of my own actually and I had to give it up because I wasn't doing very well um but I had a mental health crisis I ended up in the hospital then um and that was kind of like one of the lowest points there's probably been like two or three really very low points of my life and that was one of them um and during that time I got put on a waiting list for healthcare. that was 2020 two months ago I finally got a call to have a discussion with a with a specialist about that um, and that discussion was very, very, very helpful mm-hmm. in identifying what some of my problems were, which are, um, you know, attachment issues as a result of trauma or um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder or all of these things. And then it's like, OK, we know what that is now. We'll put you on a different waiting list for something else. So this idea of peace is kind of like a something that is at the end of a waiting list that eventually I'll get to. And I don't know what that looks like because actually I probably haven't had any peace ever. <laughs> probably. You know what I mean? Apart from times where maybe I'm like high on drugs or I'm asleep or something. I just feel like there's maybe not been all that many points of peace. Or maybe it's something that actually does exist and it is available to me in my life and I just don't have the skills. Um or the wherewithal to actually identify it and live in it. Maybe I'm just always looking for the next thing or filling my mind with other things. So with the appointment that you had, was that with like a, a standard counsellor or was that with a, a psychologist? Uh, it was with a psychologist. So I'd had um, counselling. I'd had counselling before and I've had CBT and all of it. And, you know, I had this appointment and they said that actually talking therapy at this point is probably not necessarily the healthcare that you need and you need more like actual treatment so not just throwing drugs at it but maybe um 
speaking to somebody that specializes in attachment theory and can help you um, learn to be more secure and all this kind of stuff. Um, all those things that kind of affect your life, relationships with other people and stuff. Um, and sorry, what was it? Just to circle back, what was the question that you asked me? Oh, no, I've just asked who is it that you spoke to? Was it a counselor or was it a psychologist? Yeah. So it was a psychologist. But when I, in 2020, when I was initially poorly and in the hospital, you get, I got took by ambulance to A&E, um, which was one of the worst experiences of my whole life, being at A&E during a pandemic and like sitting outside taking up an ambulance when someone somewhere is dying and they need to be red lighted and you're just a little wanker that's in an ambulance taking yeah. up the space and you get put in a cubicle next to somebody that's screaming in agony because they've had some kind of physical problem and you're just a little prick that like isn't even allowed to take do you know what I mean you like you just take up space and resource and you're just this little arsehole and I spoke to a first responder there and they said um they said oh actually maybe is because I said I feel like I'm never going to be well and they said well maybe you, you will never be well but there are things you can do to learn to cope with it and actually that wasn't what I needed to hear at that time. And then I was on a bunch of meds and sort of lost a couple of years of my life without having any thoughts and feelings. Um, what were you taking, can I just ask? Uh, metazapine. Um, and also, so initially when I first got home from the hospital, I got a prescription for metazapine, but they also gave me uh, benzodiazepines. They gave me one for overnight and then said the next day, call um, your doctor, tell them that, You've spoken to somebody in A&E. You need benzodiazepines to get through, diazepam, to get through the next week or so while metazapine gets into your system and they'll give it to you. And then I spoke to the doctor and my doctor was like, oh, if I give you diazepam, you're going to keep asking for it. And so we're not going to give it to you. And it wasn't until then I fell into another period of crisis as a result of that conversation with the doctor um, that I spoke to the crisis line. They spoke to the doctor. And then the doctor allowed me to have seven diazepam tablets while I got used to metazapine, um, which was a, a whole process of its own. But it wasn't until this most recent discussion with actually a psychologist um, that said, oh, so a lot of what you're feeling is completely understandable for what you've gone through. And I said, you know, this this woman said that I'll probably never be well but I can find ways of coping with it and it just took this guy to say to me oh no 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 you can be well I'm t- I'm t- I've seen loads of people that go through this thing and you can be well and it was that moment where I was like well fucking hell because for the last three years I've been like I'm never gonna be well 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 and actually the idea that you're never gonna be well is bearable on days that you're well which is most days I would say these days you know what I mean I have these thoughts in my mind and these little things that happen but I'm not always in the pit of despair like unable to do stuff I'm highly functioning I'll go to work every day and I do good work and I do my best um but actually just having somebody go I don't know you, you can be well you're not stuck just having a discussion with somebody that says that to me has actually changed my life in so many ways. Wow. And it might very well be that there's, because there's a big waiting list now to get healthcare. So I'm trying to find somebody that, and just do it privately, which is hard in a cosy lives. Um, but that actually having someone tell you that you can be well is really, really helpful. And I think this is where you were talking about talking to friends and family or somebody that might understand you. Actually, they could have, somebody else could have probably told me that I could be well <laughs> sooner than this. <laughs> 
but I didn't allow them to because maybe I wasn't being open with my communication and I just got it in my head. I know this healthcare person that I spoke to, this first responder, this mental health person told me that I'm never going to be well. And that was all that I had in my mind, you know. That's all that you heard and that's all that you've been reminding yourself of for the last three years. Exactly. And most of the time it's like, oh, I'm never going to be well, but that's what happens, you know, your life's fucked up and this is the way that it is and we just find a way to get through it. And actually now I've got this positive thing on the horizon where I'm like I could be well I just need to find the right person to help fix it and that has been transformative really yeah I think I think for me I mean with my own mental health having not so much accepting that you're going to have poor mental health but for me it was more about the days or the weeks or the months when I do feel really unwell remembering like really remembering that it is only temporary and that you know, I will struggle with my mental health for the rest of my life. It's not just a case of I had a shit year that year because X, Y, Z happened. You know, this is it's not just a case of right. That's dealt with now. I had counselling. I had meds. That's fine. I'm going to be absolutely ready and raring to go. Yeah. This is a lifelong thing that I have to manage. And I know that through periods of stress or when I don't look after myself particularly well, my mental health will kick my ass and put me on. The yeah. Floor. But remembering that the not not that I'm never going to be well but just this is a part of me now this is yeah. something that's going to rear its head every now and again and yeah. managing my own expectations of my mental health has been yeah a bit of a bit of a change for me I think yeah well it's this I've always known in my mind and this is what I always say to anybody that I know that's going through like the doldrums I'm always better at giving advice to other people than I am at like taking it myself 100% but a big part of it is where I'm like, tell me anything in nature that doesn't change with time, like mountains, the sea, the coastline, all these big fucking things. Like, you think you're the only thing in nature that's going to stay stuck like this? Come on. Like, how special do you think you are? I was just going to say the exact same thing, yeah. You're just another natural thing, and that does change. For me, I always I know that there's ups and downs. I've been in this brain for long enough to know um that there's ups and downs but sometimes when the downs are like really really down I'll think fucking hell I can't take another single one of these dips I can't take another another one of these but you are right in that having this like awareness that you will be better is is super super helpful and something that um the psychologist told me when I had this appointment a couple of months ago um he said when like when you were a kid you've inherited a house and that house is fucked. He didn't say that because obviously he's a professional guy, but it was something along the lines of you've inherited this house that's like decrepit and maybe your parents have like set fire to rooms in it or it's been let go to rack and ruin and it's a big piece of shit. And you, he didn't say that either. Uh, but you've inherited this house and was it, is it your fault that this house that you live in is shit and fucked? And I said, well, no because it's not my fault that I've got, now got this house. This is the house that I live in. And he was like, but is it your responsibility to do what you can to make that house better to live in? And and actually it is. And I can't keep spending my life being like, this is how it's always going to be without actually putting in the graft to like overhaul this house and make it nicer to live in. So while I feel like I started off this podcast by being like a miserable little bastard, what what I will say is that I do know that there's a chance of it being better, but I'm going to have to really put a lot of graft and, and work and effort into it. Um, but I think probably I just need a little bit more support with the scaffolding of the house while I'm doing it. You can't do that on your own. No. I mean, 
if I can take you back to when you was literally a, 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 a little bastard, um, uh, you say that way much better than me. That's a normal thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, Bozzers, can you remember, I mean, you know, obviously we're, not, we're, we're certainly not prying in any way, shape or form, but you mentioned childhood trauma. Can you remember when you first maybe realised that your mental health probably wasn't as healthy as maybe some of the people you was at school with or at college with or at, or at work with? Yeah, I didn't have any awareness of that, actually, until probably, um, I think I probably went away to university and separated myself from my life. Um, during the time, I, I can recognise now that I wasn't well. Uh, so I had um, a period of, in my final year at, at secondary school, I had a few um, months off with some kind of, non-specific stomach problem where I couldn't keep food down and I constantly was in pain and it was never really diagnosed because no one knew what it was because even though that was only 25 years ago no one fucking understood that that was anxiety and it was constant worry and all this kind of stuff and I didn't realize that until I'm an adult and now I look back at things in my childhood and I'm like well that makes total sense now that I know what I know um, but at the time, I didn't realise in the same way that like I didn't realise actually um, I was in an ab- abusive like household. You don't realise until you're out of it because you think that that's how everyone lives. So I always just thought that this is that everyone felt like this. I used to Sundays were particularly bad just because um, for context, I was brought up just by my mum and we lived in um, in like poverty for. For, for a lot of the time because she's got addiction um issues um and and so on Sundays Sundays I always felt so so bad because I we weren't eating on Sundays and I just thought oh everyone that hasn't got a dad doesn't eat on Sundays they only have like one tuna sandwich they got one tin of tuna between all of them on a Sunday if they haven't got a dad I thought that was how it was and for ages when I became an adult trying to not hate Sundays was difficult because I used to lie in bed as a kid and have these feelings of like guilt like we were taught how to lie quite early and um, we were taught how to be duplicitous and to be secretive Um, and so that fit that feeling of like anxiety and guilt and like badness that I couldn't specify that kind of continued to haunt me into adulthood and I had to do a lot of like reprogramming of like what Sundays are and that Sundays are actually a joyful day that you can be free and you're not at work and stuff. But it took a lot of time to get to that point. So even though I didn't know at the time that I was experiencing poor mental health as an adult now with that retrospect, I can see that actually that probably started quite early. And so who was the first person that you really spoke to about it when you realised, shit, things might not be as good as they could be? I had a friend when I was at university called Alex and his mom was a counsellor at the uni actually and um and I remember once going through a horrible period where I couldn't even get out of bed and I couldn't go to class I couldn't go to my lectures um I was studying to be a journalist and it is all I've ever wanted to do um but I couldn't I couldn't get out of bed and I remember Alex coming around the one day and just being like this isn't right like the what the fact that you can't get out of bed to do this thing that is like your life's dream it's not right you you shouldn't be feeling like this and you need to get help you need to get support um and so like I ended up getting like 
extenuating circumstances and I spent all that time playing World of Warcraft and like not working on myself and not knowing because I didn't know what was the matter with me and even up until quite recently I think it's probably only been the past sort of like four or five years that I've been able to like connect what happened and what has happened to me in my life especially my earlier years and the way that I act now as an adult, I couldn't really connect the two of those things as being like cause and effect, you know. And so Alex like really pushed to try and get me to go to counselling. And I had it in my mind that if I went there and I just told them all of these horrible things that had happened, that they would just talk me through how to not feel bad about it anymore and that I would be better. And it didn't. And it didn't help. Um, And so I had it in my mind that actually going and speaking to somebody and isn't going to make any difference and so it's always just been really muddled this is why I think it's so scary that I think I sort of mentioned this briefly to you yeah about having a, a mental health awareness so many people think that what that means is um you know checking on your friends and be around for them when they're crying and that's you done like that's your part of it be kind to people in the street and don't be an arsehole and that's like the, the catch-all answer and actually there's so much about mental health that we still don't know mm. and we're still not discussing and the nuances of it you know I felt like even the way that I treated boys in my 20s I was like having boyfriends and then I was dumping them because they didn't make me feel well and I was waiting for someone to make me feel like fulfilled and secure and actually no boys would ever be able to give me that that's something that I've got to do by myself but I would like hurt people's feelings and then I felt like a big prick and that I couldn't get anyone to just say to me like oh well the reason you're doing that is because of these other issues I couldn't couldn't really grasp it so I just felt like I was always just being I I was always just an arsehole to other people because I didn't have any understanding of like my own mental health or how how to be better and so no one was me or anyone um could appreciate that actually being patient with somebody that's being a little prick is is a big part of it it's not just about like being there for them when they're crying but actually like giving them a little bit of grace but we can't do that until there's education in like what it is to be mentally ill you know you might want to reframe that for the poster though bosses uh when you're being a little prick i think maybe that that tagline yeah uh, yeah oh, there's obviously, obviously underlying self-hatred that <laughs> i quite like that no i think um i think for a lot of people it's um an awkwardness or a fear of not knowing what to say because people like I think intrinsically we're all fixers we don't want someone that we care about to be unwell or to be hurting or to be sad and so you just want to fix it you want to make it all better and if you can't you tend to kind of pull away and I know that I've had that (laughs) for any of my mates that might be listening to this um yeah when I've been really struggling and they want to talk and it's like I don't I don't want to talk I don't want to talk I just sit and I just just want to in a little pit and feel sorry for myself yeah and I've got one friend who every now and again she'll just ping me over a text just to say I'm thinking of you and you know I hope that you're okay sending you a little cosmic hug down the down Lovely. the phone line and it's like that's perfect that's all I need I don't need you to try and fix me or make it all better just to say that you're thinking of me and yeah and I think 
that there's only a few people that can actually do that where they're taking ownership and realizing that I can't fix this I can't take this feeling away from you but I'm here and when you're ready to start engaging and crawl out of your pit I'm ready to take your hand and you know we'll go dancing maybe yeah I, I am really lucky in that I, I know that I've got friends that I could call on this is a thing like I'm I'm alone quite a lot and I feel lonely quite a lot but I've got loads of people in my life that I feel like I could call on that would look at look out for me if I needed them but I think it's just getting this idea in my head of like what can they how can they help and how am I just not burdening them with my problem you know what I mean what what is the interaction for <laughs> I don't know how to explain it it always feels a, a little bit like a normal loving relationship with my friends always feels a little bit transactional when I'm the one that's dropping a big weight of shit on their doorstep and you know what I mean I just but that that's that's why they're friends I, I know I'm having to do a lot of learning with that but I've got um yeah I think maybe I've just got some like some issues of how to connect with other people that's a big part of of my difficulty I think is finding ways to like meaningfully connect with other people in a way that I don't feel like just a big pain in the ass. <laughs> oh my god, am I so depressing? I'm really sorry. No, 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 it's trying to phrase I, his thoughts. I, I, I just think like so much of what you're saying um is is going to resonate with so many listeners. Um and and I can't thank you enough for 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 being so uh open and showing that vulnerability on, on, on ear buzzers. Um have you got like when you feel that like you're getting to, to, to a situation that you, you can feel that you, you're starting to slip and, and things are getting more bleak. Yeah. Um, have you got sort of triggers and things in like behavioral things that you are, you are aware of that you think, all right, I know why this is happening because I'm, I'm on the slide a little bit here. Um, I tend to just like throw away everything that matters to me. <laughs> I like, you know what I mean? I fall out with friends a lot, which is one of the most painful things in my life, actually, is, like, I look back at Alex, for example, who did everything that he could for me when I was at uni. When we when we ended our, our like, learning and went back to our homes, everyone else went back to, like, their school friends and their families and their lives, and I went back to nothing. And when these people whose pockets you live in don't are now absent from your life and don't want to talk to you every single day like they did when you all lived together or all lived close to one another and everyone else goes back to their lives actually that feeling of like rejection which in hindsight is like something that I could probably have dealt with if it wasn't for the fact that I've got a real big like issue with rejection in general or feeling like very alone um, I would just be like, you know what? Well, fuck you. Then you don't look. You don't love me like I love you. So forget about it. And I, and I, I like threw away friendships. And I never. I need to speak to that guy if I can find a way. But I never want to darken his doorstep with it. Really, he's got a lovely, you know, wife and kids, and he's living his life now. But that's like such a big regret for me. And I've done that a lot. You know, I've had loads of amazing friends that I really loved. And then it would be that when I'm feeling really, really bad or really, really low. And they will do something very, very simple, like not phone me when they say they're going to phone me or 
cancel dinner or or something and i'll just be like you, you don't fucking love me no one loves me everything's shit and it like turns into this big thing so my relationships with other people and like main, my ability to maintain healthy relationships with other people is like a big a big problem in my life and it does um you know with things like work i've got to keep this house going i've got to keep my bills paid i've got to keep petrol in my car and you know keep my phone bill on and keep the heating on and so i show up to work all the time and i showed up to work i like just to be like really like candid when i was poorly i ended up with like um bruising on my face i had like a bit of a purple face and like bleed bleeding in, in the whites of my eyes you know i showed up to work the following monday that happened on like a thursday i showed up to work the following monday and i did the job that i needed to do because those things I have to keep going because they're all all I've got in the darkest times. I've like got to keep working. I've got to keep going. Um, Do you find so, comfort in that, Bozzers? The fact that there's structure there and there's something that's that's there, and you there's that security of that. Yeah, and and I think there's just this big like this is all part of the process of like running away from poverty and running away from difficulty. And the only way that I'm ever going to be able to be comfortable is if I keep grafting and I can't afford to be sick. I can't afford to be off. Um, and there's times where I definitely needed a couple of weeks. <laughs> it would have been nice, but I'm self-employed. I've been self-employed for the best part of 10 years. Um, so I can't really afford to be sick. I can't afford to be ill or off. I'm really fortunate that a lot of the editors that I work for are like really, really understanding and, and they like allow me to be a bit mad and have days where I do more than other days and they always support me and like be understanding that process because I'm always candid about things. Um but that's great that you can be mm, open with them and, they're, and yeah, they're oh my god. Yeah, thank God. And I think my the fact that I'm like maybe not um completely normal and you know that probably helps a little bit in a lot of like the things that I do because I'm a creative writer and I think that you know it probably helps actually that I'm not that I've got a different like a different perspective on things probably makes my work better um but I think it makes it harder for people that see me all the time to see when I'm going into a, a bad spiral because I present as somebody that isn't in that and I do try to say on the internet I'll be like, like yesterday I had a really bad day I was like doing some I was reporting behind the scenes of the Strictly Come Dancing tour with all these celebrities I didn't know. And I was feeling really anxious in a place that I didn't know very well, you know, with people that I didn't know and didn't recognise. I didn't know who any of the celebrities were and I didn't know what I was going to ask them. And I got myself into a right spiral. And when I left the arena, I did my, I wrote up all the stories that I needed to write up and I drove home and then I was like badly sick and I couldn't keep food down and like had one of the worst, like most chronic stress-related headaches. Just felt terrible. Um, but I know that my editor, I could just be like, I'm, I think today is going to be hard. I think it's going to be a bit shit, but then, and she, and she's always like, don't, don't worry. What can, let's talk through ideas. Let's have a meeting. She's wicked. Like they're so good in that regard, but I don't think they, they necessarily see like, um, what it's really like when I get home and I'm just here by myself, which is when I finally let it all out and, you know, spew or whatever, <laughs> you know, um, I think it probably makes it more difficult for my friends my friends and the people around me to see that I'm not doing very well when I just present as like someone that is a little bit quirky and she has a little bit of a difficulty, but actually they don't know that I'm sitting at home like 
Googling death rattles or something, you know, <laughs> any of these things that people do when they're sad. You um... Just listen to the Smiths. Dude, don't start me on Morrissey because I could talk about it all day. I've got I've got problems with this guy. I love him and he, I love Morrissey and he turned his back on me. I came running on that. Don't you yeah. feel like he's looked down though, Shu? He he was the one that that we all lent on. That's what I'm saying. And like... I think I think that I feel worse about what Morrissey has done to me than I do about like my own biological father <laughs> not being around. <laughs> We've we've got Johnny Marr, bosses. We've got to hold on and cherish Johnny Marr. No, well, that's it. You you couldn't have had the Smiths without the jangly. And I know I love Morris's lyrics and stuff, but that jangly guitar certainly does uh, give you something to hold on to. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, You you mentioned earlier, uh, but I mean, uh, as a journalist, you're in, you you know, news is always going to be all-encompassing, and you said that you lost an hour on TikTok. Um, Tell me about the the sort of, because I know, like, uh, not Bozzers, but Kirsty from Reach Out, you don't watch the news, do you? No, I was just going to say, I was going to mention that when you were talking, Bozzers, like, I don't, I try not to watch the news. Um, I don't really use social media. I live in my own bubble. Like, before we press record, Sue and I were having a chat about bits and pieces, and i yeah, I was talking about something that was in the press a couple of years ago and I've only just realised about it. But it keeps me well to a certain degree. And yeah. if I did engage with this stuff, you know, as much as everyone else does, I don't think I would be functioning at totally all. Totally understand. You know, it's really strange. I, I've got this dichotomy in that, actually, I, it's called news avoidance, that is. It's a, it's a, it's a thing that that is... I went to this conference, I won this little award. I won this little award. And I had to go to this conference to like collect it, um, this women in journalism. And one of the discussions that we had there was about news avoidance and the fact that news avoidance is impacting the business that I work for that pays my bills. I'm so sorry. Um, I'll send you yeah. a check. Oh, fuck you, Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking, mate. Um, that, that is a big thing. For me, I don't work on news. I write features and... So I work at a newspaper alongside journalists that do hard news, but I deliberately make all of my features as light-hearted as possible. You could probably take 99% of my body of work and fit it somewhere into this, like, um, good news portion of a website. You know what I mean? I, I feel the same as you in that I can't... As much as I want to be engaged in, like, global politics and stuff... If I can't, if I can't see kids crying on the news, I can't, I can't cope with it because I can't, you know, I'm not well enough to deal with it. And I think that that's actually let quite a lot of people down that like follow me or look to my journalism, and they think, well, she's not reposting this video of a man holding his dead baby in Palestine, and that means that I'm like, you know, a bastard for not doing it and not using my voice. And I, I I've got that feeling inside as well, where I think, you know. I'm having to separate the news, which is hard because I work in the news, but it's interesting that, um, so the National Council of Training Journalists, which is who we do our training through when you start, when you become a, a print journalist specifically for me, um, they've recently introduced um, 
resilience training, a module where they teach journalists to be resilient. Um, and that could be because of the things that they're reporting on. Um, but a big part of it is uh, coping with the way that people treat you as a journalist. So people are very sceptical of journalists and they hate journalists. And, um, you know, people, I've, I've talked about this on the Mama, Mama podcast. I know you know Mama, Mama. Easy for you to say. What's um, it called? Mum and Mama. It's Amy Borman's podcast. Um, but I've been on her podcast before on the back of, I had a story that went viral and millions of people read it. It was it was crazy. And we were chatting about, you know, what that looks like when you've got a lot of people's eyes on you or a lot of people are aware of who you are um, and you're sharing an opinion or a part of your personality and what that feedback is like. And actually, I think a lot of resilience training has to be dealing with the fact that the comment sections, people contacting you, um, people hating you. I, I'm i like, I live in a fat body. I'm okay with it. It's certainly got fat once I was on metazapine, which is nice of them. Um, but <laughs> that is a big issue where if I put a picture, I write a lot of food reviews. I do a lot of food reporting and, we have to we keep comments off them, part partly because readers are really unkind, and also because Wait, when am I being really naive? What are they being unkind? How can someone hate a journalist unless you're an absolute greedy, greedy fat bitch? Mostly, the <laughs> Really? Oh my god! The comment section. Everyone always says to me, "Don't read below the line on your stories," because the comments are just absolutely hateful. Not all of them. I'm really, really lucky in that. Because a lot of what I write is like very positive. I like to take people on the journey with me and I talk about food and I talk about Birmingham and how much I love it and all the beautiful things that are happening all around the city. And I try to always keep it positive. And so there are a lot of people that are kind, but most often people that enjoy a story or enjoy something that you've read, they read it and they might smile and go, oh, that was good. And then they move on with their lives. But people that hate you or that feel vitriolic about um, journalism in general, the state of journalism, the state of their local media or whatever, or just the fact that I'm a, a fat girl that gets to eat food and that's my job while they're like grafting <laughs> however many hours, you know, in their di more difficult jobs. I'm sure that they, maybe there's just an element of being like this fucking bitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? It doesn't say, what we'll say about- It's like you're giving them permission, Buzz. Well, the- <laughs> This is this is really important to me to mention actually that no one that is happy is a prick to people on the internet. No. And what I have learned from my own experience with poor mental health and just the way that I've like treated friends and treated boys over the years, where they would probably say, Kirstie's a bitch, she's a fucking bitch, she's a prick, you know, all of these things where I've like dumped people or never, you know told them I was in love with them one day and the next day I've like run away from them because I'm scared and I never ever speak to them ever again and they probably say Kirstie's a she's a bitch she's a cold-hearted horrible bitch and I'm not I've got my own problems and this is one of the things that I have learned is that every single person that is an arsehole to me on the internet or is a prick to you in the street or when you pull up to a roundabout and they cut you off and they flip you the bird and they tell you that you're a bastard like all of those people they have got their own shit going on. And actually, I think it makes you a more compassionate person. And that helps with, you know, forgiving yourself mm. for the mistakes that you've made in your life. You can't do that work and then not go out into the world and treat everyone that is an arsehole to you 
with the same level of compassion. I think it makes you a more compassionate person. That's a bit of a gift, really. Yeah, no, I get that. I get that. I take that on board. But I think... I'm not sure in the comments, though, mate, it feels horrible. No, I was going to say, there's absolutely no excuse I got for a that. one this morning, and I screenshotted it and posted it because it made me laugh. Uh, I also host a... You know I've got about 5 million podcast buzzers. <laughs> um, but I do one with one of the lads from the Inbetweeners. And, uh, and we posted um, uh, on our little MMA podcast a picture, a video of us talking about a new episode. <laughs> this comment's fucking great. Are they being genuine? Uh, yeah. Uh, my favourite father-son podcast duo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, incredible. They think oh. I'm his dad. That's how old I'm looking. <laughs> But I'm always aware uh, as somebody that's that's had uh, an eating disorder and has very warped opinions on on weight uh, and, and what I should look like that every time we put a new video up, it's the comments I'm I'm thinking it's a matter of time before someone's going to dig me on. on yeah, that. and uh, and yeah, and it's weird because. I know I shouldn't look at them, but I do. Oh, this is why I could never be famous. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? It's like, I didn't get into, I thought I'd get into journalism and I'm going to be writing stories. They're going to go into a newspaper and then they're going to the bottom of someone's hamster cage and you'll never see them again. I didn't know when I started training as a journalist, social media didn't exist, you know what I mean? So we got MySpace in the very early part of my university career. In the first year of university, I don't think Facebook existed. Um... In the, in, the, in the early years of my training. So I chose a career thinking that I was going to be like writing and no one would ever know who I was and there would just be a name there and that would be it. I didn't think that I was going to be like forward facing and people would know who I was and see my, you know, pictures of me or I don't know. I just never expected it. I don't, And I, I live in Birmingham. I write mostly for the people of Birmingham and I love Birmingham. And, um, and so it's still, you know, I mean... At one month last year, more people read my stories than on Birmingham Mail than are people that exist in Birmingham. And what that means is that there's going to be people that don't understand you or don't come from where you're from um, that are going to have things to say about your opinions on stuff. And I try not to look at the comments as well. But also, when we do what we do, um, sure you'll know this, Um there's a sense of community that comes from it that is actually very fulfilling and life affirming. And that's the comments that you're looking for. The the other shit's there. You don't want to cut all of that out because you're scared. The reason of I was there was I was going through them and thanking people for their comments. Saying. Positive ones. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, but it, I do feel like it's a minefield and sooner or later there's going to be something that I'd love to think, ah, it's brought off a duck's back, but it it it, it no. will work. It, it, yeah. it will and it's that thing, isn't it, where you can have a hundred <laughs> comments, ninety nine of them will be positive, one will be from a fuckhead, and that's the one that you'll remember. Really yeah. over constantly. I've become a little bit more resilient to it as I've gotten older, and I do laugh like some of the comments that I see. I, I saw one the other day, and it um, <laughs> it was quite funny. I made a bit big joke about it, and actually turned it into like a bit of a series. But before Christmas. I did like a review of hot chocolate in Birmingham, this amazing hot chocolate that you could get just off the Christmas market. And I did it and I was like, because I tried to tell people, like, look at this cool place you can go away to and get this beautiful thing. And one of the comments was, fat girl eats chocolate, yawn. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started doing a fat 
girl eats chocolate you on like adventure where I would do loads of stories where I was a fat girl eating chocolate because I'm not you know I know what I am and I'm not you know being fat isn't a, a criticism of me I know I know the body that I'm in I'm all right with it you know I'm not if I wanted to be thin I'll just go and go to the gym and eat better and not go out for dinner and eat six course meals on a Monday night for no reason do you know what I'm saying um but yeah so th- you build up some level of resilience, but sometimes it does cut. And I remember at my, the old newspaper I was working at, I got, I had a little column. Um, and we're talking like 10 years ago. I was too young to have a column. I thought that all my opinions like were very important opinions. And I had like, you know, dramatic opinions on stuff like Morrissey and vegetarianism and things. Um, and I would write and there was comments and I would get like a bunch of comments from somebody be, from different people saying like, oh, this shit excuse as a blogger is getting published in the newspaper again. And then one of my colleagues went onto the back end of the website and saw that all of these different users that were saying horrible things about me were coming from the same IP address. No way. There is that. So one person hated me and they just kept logging in at different names and set, like piling on me, but it was a one-man piler. Very strange. I mean, how? What, what, who has the time or the inclination uh, to do that? Think- what the fuck? Being a woman is part of it. Being a woman in journalism that has an opinion on anything. <laughs> People just hate women with opinions for the most part. Um, mm. so that's that's one of the difficult parts of it. But those, I mean, you can't scare me by calling me a fat bitch that eats chocolate. That's, that doesn't scare me. I've seen darkness. There's nothing like this. Is, this is the cherry on the top of my ice cream. This, I, this is nothing. I don't care about what you think about my weight. Can't hurt. You can't hurt me. I've been hurt. This ain't it. <laughs> hot chocolate's fucking great as well, isn't it? I had the best hot chocolate. I'm <laughs> going to do a little shout out, actually. Mr. Cavendish's in Chelmsford. I had a cherry hot chocolate on Monday and it was absolute bliss. Was it boozy or just standard? No, it was a Monday, sadly. I could have had booze in it, but no, it was uh, just a standard cherry kind of <sighs> syrup. And I'm not a massive cherry fan. But oh, I thought, oh, let's go for it. And it was so magical. I made this last about half an hour. Beautiful. It really just go, back for a second. go back for a second. Listen to me. As a fat bird that eats chocolate, go back and get another one. Go and get two large ones. I can't deal with people that make things last longer. Like, look, for well, me. I should have just downed it in yeah, one. Like, <laughs> for me, a four finger Kit Kat, right? That's, that's four bites, right? You break it in two. One, two, three, four. No! Done. And it's like when you get them people that sit there and fucking nibble it. Like, like with the twigs. Oh, with the twigs, I take off the top. Come on, and then man. I've got to eat them. Like, no. It's really disgusting, Kirsty. I get Pringles, like green Pringles, and I'll take one out and I'll lick all the dust off and I'll lick the dust off the other side and then I'll eat the Pringle. I really hoped you were going to say, then put it back. <laughs> <laughs> I live by myself. I'd just, be, I'd just be fooling myself there, wouldn't I? <laughs> I lick one side and I lick the other side and I think, God, this must be terrible to look at. <laughs> only, one, but only one side tastes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just in case the one beneath has come off on the bottom of the other one. She's really thought about this, isn't she? Hey, I'm not wasteful. <laughs> Cost of living prices, Stu. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Flavor. <laughs> oh, what a delightful way to uh, to finish what, what has been a lovely conversation. And, and, and Bozza's. I can't thank you enough for, uh, you know, I mentioned it earlier for for being so open and honest and and showing that vulnerability on this podcast. It's it's been thank absolutely you. lovely of you. Thank you so much. And I know if that- I can just end on just saying because I felt like I came in hot with the misery. And what I really want to make sure that I'm clear on is that 
actually the ups and when you're not in those doldrums and I know that it is a process or a roller coaster of ups and downs but the ups are worth getting through the downs for you know what I mean I don't want I don't want it to sound as I'm going and I'm like everything's shit and and I'm miserable forever I'm I'm on a journey of re rebuilding renovating this house and I just want to be really clear on that so I don't come across like just a miserable little love that misery brilliant and hashtag hot chocolate saves lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, if you're feeling low, go and get yourself a box of uh, of Pringles and uh, and start licking. Get them licked. <laughs> get them licked. <laughs> Bosses, I'm going to press stop, but don't go anywhere. Thank you.